The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Global markets hint at more volatility to come. Comcast may spoil Disney's pursuit of Fox, and Singapore's aviation market has everyone buzzing. These are the topics we'll be discussing on this week's edition of The Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Anthony Curry, and with me is my co-host, Jennifer Saber. Hi, Jen. Hi, Anthony. Global markets are starting to show signs of vulnerability as wild swings suggest there could be trouble ahead. Lucky for us, we have our global economics editor, Swaha Patnaik, on the line from London to help us translate the volatility. Welcome, Swaha. Hi, Jen. Um, Okay, so as we speak, the U.S. released a new batch of data that shows the consumer prices rose more than expected in January. And the market took uh, a little dip this morning. Um, Swaha, this is one of the data points weighing on the mind of investors. What's happening here? Well, there's been a couple of shocks. One was the wage uh, growth in the U.S., which surpassed expectations uh, a little more than a week ago. And now we've had some inflation data that's coming in above expectations. We are leaving an era where central banks have given markets sort of guidance for a couple of years out. So they are becoming very data dependent and very reactive to each sign that the Fed may tighten. And that changes the path of how attractive bonds are or how attractive stocks look. And this is is generating some of the fragility that you mentioned at the beginning. Yeah, I mean, and, and just to put this in perspective, I mean, overall, the market is still way up. Uh, it's certainly in the US. Um, but it, just the drops and, and the swings are a little disconcerting. I mean, it, and the other thing is that the Fed has sort of signaled that they're going to be raising rates for a while now. Is that correct? So I guess yes. why all of a sudden, I mean, it, like you said about the wage data, but it, it shouldn't be a shock, right? Well, we've been waiting so long to see some signs of inflation and some signs that very low unemployment rates will finally push up people's wages that now that we get it, people seem very shocked because we've spent so long waiting for this uh, event to come along. The other issue is what levels of bond yields we are at. We have got to very close to 3% uh, US um, T-note yields for 10 years and wage growth is coming up to 3%. And we're seeing the pricing of how fast the Fed may have to hike, therefore changing a little bit. The same thing's going on on this side of the pond in the UK, where Mark Carney, the Bank of England governor, has been um, guiding people a little bit towards expecting faster rate rises and rate rises have to go higher this year than he'd originally anticipated. It won't be anything like the historical sort of peaks of interest rates in the UK or on the US um, for that matter. But it's just a little different in terms of what investors have had to deal with for the past eight, nine years. So um, in terms of these hikes, um, like what does that do then? Does that is that going to effectively is the idea that it's going to cool the market or is that just a reaction to the hikes? The Fed is not targeting the markets. And if it were, it should have been hiking a long time ago because okay. people have been talking about overvalued stock markets for a while. Okay. Um, the Fed is looking at is the economy growing sustainably? Is inflation posing a risk um, to the long term mandate it has to sort of 
generate healthy growth and keep inflation in check. So we are getting to the point where they are seeing finally some of the wage inflation that they've been waiting for, some of the inflation, just nominal inflation that they've been waiting for. And that is perhaps giving them the green light to go ahead a little more confidently with rate rises under the new chairman, Jerome Powell. Um, that is not necessarily a bad thing. These things are normal for an economy, but it's just investors have got used to central banks keeping interest rates very low, to there being very low volatility in financial markets. And that's the basis on which investment decisions have been made for the best part, as I said, of eight years. When that changes, one needs to adjust the sort of return one can expect on bonds, how much volatility risks you are anticipating when you plan on certain types of returns. And that changes the whole investment framework in which uh, asset managers are working. Okay, so this is the last question here. That just because the global markets may um, come down a notch or two, or who knows what's going to happen, I mean, I guess in, in theory, what, what does that do for the economy? Does that necessarily mean that it's going to all of a sudden put the brakes in the economy? Like, where do we see, like, it, it's great here in the U.S. right now, as, we, as you mentioned, there's wage growth, um, unemployment is, um, you know, at, at, at nice levels. So what happens, you know, how far out will, will this kind of catch up with the market, if it even does? Does it matter, I guess, right. if, you, if you're Interest kind of, rates you know, that you're talking about, the policy rates set by central banks, are still historically at very, very low levels. We went below zero in Europe. You didn't mm -hmm. get quite that low in the U.S., but you yeah, were at zero close. to zero point two five. Yeah. So we are coming from very, very low levels. We're moving up very slowly. So this is not levels we haven't seen before that the economy can't cope with. But people are concerned that there has been more leverage taken on by companies and individuals, perhaps, um, and that might respond, um, you know, these people might respond by pairing back investment on the part of companies or cutting back spending on the part of households. We did see today some slightly weaker retail sales data, for example. But when you get to bond yields, the Fed's rate rises impacts how attractive it is to hold bonds currently. So that moves uh, ships bond yields higher. That will eventually filter through to higher borrowing costs for companies. So these things trickle through. Financial markets tend to move very quickly and anticipate everything in one fell swoop. Yeah. So um, perhaps that's part of what we're seeing here. Okay. Well, Swaha, thank you so much for coming on the program. Thanks, Jen. Walt Disney's 52.4 billion acquisition for a large chunk of 21st Century Fox may have some competition. Jen, explain this latest twist in, in this massive media M&A game. Yeah, so um, Comcast may be lurking around the fringes. They um, basically, when this whole deal broke last year in December, um, Comcast was looking at Fox, and uh, apparently they were one of the bidders for some of Fox assets. Just as a reminder, Disney is buying uh, Fox's cable networks like FX and National Geographic, the movie studios, and then their international assets like right. Star India and, and their stake in Sky. So um, what's really interesting is that Comcast put a bid out on the table, which was $60 billion, more or less. So that's more than... It's, 50, than, it's about, I think, 15% than right. what Disney is willing to pay. Um, clearly, Disney ended up getting this. And now Comcast is thinking, well, hey, we may come back because um, they don't want their competitor, Disney, to get much larger. What is it that makes Comcast a potential bidder for 
uh, a lot of of these Fox assets. Okay, so well, I'll I'll explain. First of all, Comcast is the largest cable provider in the United States, um, but they also went off and acquired NBC Universal, um, and that is a broadcaster, and mm-hmm. I think people are probably familiar with that. And then they went off and did theme parks. Um, so Comcast has theme parks too. Yeah, they have Universal. There you um, go. And, and their movie studio is Universal. Here's the thing, Brian Roberts, that's the uh, CEO of Comcast. His family controls Comcast. Um, he is uh, he's a very smart um, acquirer um, for the most part. I mean, he did run into trouble uh, a couple of years ago when he tried to acquire Time Warner Cable. The DOJ and the government was trying to block that that and they abandoned that bid. But so and they actually tried to buy Disney uh, about a, a decade ago as well. So all these things are kind of percolating in the background. So they, I think, want a couple of things. They they do not have an international presence, not a real one. And some of Fox assets may be attracted to, to them for that reason. Mm-hmm. Star India being one, uh, Sky being another. Um, so that could be one way into it. And then clearly well, what it's about now is you know, everyone is trying to partner up and it's like musical chairs. And you don't want to be the last guy standing without, you know, right. a chair, so to speak, and, and so, without a place to sit. So, so what then um, is stopped um, Fox from considering it? I mean, why wouldn't you take a fifteen percent higher offer? Here is a, a, a good point to remind everybody that Fox is controlled by Rupert Murdoch. Rupert Mur- Murdoch does what he wants to do, right? Mostly. So, um, there are two reasons possibly that he did not want Comcast. Uh, as a potential buyer. One is that uh, the regulatory issues, the thinking is that it's going to be much easier for Disney to acquire uh, some of Fox's assets than it would be for Comcast. Why is that? Because Comcast is a cable distributor. And um, there, right now, we have a case in front of the DOJ where a distributor, AT&T, is trying to buy Time Warner and the Justice Department is sued to block that. Right. Okay, so... Disney is basically just a bunch of um, media assets, so they don't have quite the same uh, equation as a Comcast does. So there's that, and I think that's a big consideration. But also, Comcast, because it's controlled by the Roberts family, this is a stock swap, and Rupert Murdoch is getting a chunk of um, Disney. Now, all Fox shareholders are getting a chunk of Disney. And they're all treated equally at Fox, is that right? There is one class of stock at um, Disney. One class of stock of Disney, right? Yes. Fox has two classes of, right. of And Comcast stock. has two classes of stock. And Comcast has two classes of stock. So, you know, Rupert Murdoch is going to own a piece of a company and in theory could influence it. He will be a big shareholder. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas that's going to be really difficult to do uh, with Comcast because Brian Roberts' family mm-hmm. controls it. They're not going to sit there and listen to Rupert Murdoch. And Murdoch knows full well exactly, of course, how such dual share structures work in the in the favor of... Uh, of those with it's, the it's, voting it's, it's an iron it's an irony i will yeah. say but the the thing that that could come out of all of this because comcast needs to wait for the proxy to to hit and it hasn't um disney may have to give a higher a higher uh, price for uh, fox so murdoch right. can end up winning no matter what all right general it sounds like you teed that up for a lot more content to come for our podcast on this deal thanks very much Now we're going to hand it off to our colleagues in Asia for a discussion about the Singapore Air Show. Hi, everyone. I'm Pete Sweeney. I'm Asia editor of Reuters Breaking Views here in Hong Kong, and I'm talking with Clara Ferrara Marquez, our 
Asia columnist and uh, who's based in Singapore about the Singapore Air Show. Um, Welcome on the show, Clara. Thank you. So I'm excited about the Singapore Air Show, and I know everybody else in the region is, but for those who are not familiar, can you give the, the wider audience a bit of an introduction about what people are so excited about with the, with the air travel story in this region? Well, Singapore is certainly extremely excited about the air show, I can tell you. So it's it's one of the big uh, global air shows. Most people in Europe will have heard of Paris, Farnborough. In Asia, it's all about Singapore. Um, it's held once every two years, and it's really where the industry comes together from the manufacturing space, finance, airlines, even a little bit of defense. The aerospace companies will come and show off their new models. The airlines come and come and have a look around. The new models that we saw this week, well, there was the Comac C919, not so new really, but a plane that isn't yet um, commercially operated. Um, Airbus, the A350-100, the new wide body, which will really serve the trans-Pacific market. So some excitement there and a lot of positives, a lot of um, excited people um, in the corridors chatting about um, the incredible growth potential in the industry. So if we think that about now we have about 4 billion passengers globally, that will more or less double by 2036. And the bulk of that growth is right here in Asia. Well, that's going to be a lot of money for somebody. Uh, how are the How are the various brands uh, positioning themselves in terms of selling airplanes or selling air air tickets um, to this to this growing population of, of travelers well that's exactly what it feels like it feels like a real race to conquer to conquer the the Asian traveler um, a lot of the conversations here this week have been about technological change, whether it's about leaving fossil fuels behind, automation, data, how you can make maintenance predictive, for example, much more efficient. Um, my personal favorite is the Sydney to London route and how airlines like Qantas, who's thinking of operating that, how they can make the super long haul work. It's really the ultimate trying to manage weather patterns, uh, number of passengers layout of the plane versus the, the fuel weight. And... In terms of aerospace, that's really a race between the A350 on the Airbus side and the 777 on the Boeing side. And Alan Joyce is, is, is the man they want to speak to. He, he's the CEO of Qantas, and he makes a decision in 2019, hoping to start these flights by 2022. Not all good news. You know, a, a, a lot of this um, race for passengers has meant uh, a, a destruction of, of margins, really. The yields have come down a lot. That's how much airlines make per passenger per mile. Um, we've seen cost pressures from Chinese operators, from the low cost. Fuel, fuel has risen a lot faster than people expected with the recovery of oil prices. And they're squeezing their planes and delaying some orders. Against the backdrop of all of this this week, of course, we've had Boeing Embraer, which will be the counterpart to Airbus Bombardier as we continue to have this duopoly um, in the industry. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned that because there, I mean, China, you mentioned the Comac 919, which is China's attempt to kind of produce a plane that can compete in this, uh, you know, medium range regional airline route um, offering. Uh, but as you say, it's still kind of a duopoly, even even more so. I mean, Boeing and Airbus look, look to be doing exceedingly well, um, especially through these new alliances. I mean, is there any real risk that their margins or their performance will be impacted going forward, or is this party going to continue for them? Well, there's a couple of things going on there. I mean, they, they really are racing for one space in particular, and that's the narrow body space. The narrow bodies are where the manufacturers make their money. They are the cash generators. Um, 
normally at air shows, these manufacturers would be picking up orders. Singapore isn't traditionally a big order air show just because of where it falls in the year. So the European air shows tend to fall in the middle. Singapore's right at the start. And we've seen one order, very small order by a Bangkok um, Airlines, a regional carrier. So it's not, it's not been very exciting on that front. But we have seen a lot of positioning, a lot of jostling um, between Boeing and Airbus in the narrow body space. And that's where China will be competing with the C919. So that, that's a pretty, a pretty tough one. And it's not just about you know, bringing the more they sell, the more, the more they can make per aircraft, but it's also about not allowing your opponent to get it. So it very much is a zero-sum game, and it's about planting flags for the future. Airlines tend to prefer to have aircraft from one manufacturer or as much as possible just because that brings down maintenance costs. Well, let me ask you, a lot of the conversation of the past decade has been this explosion in Chinese aviation, um, you know, but there's also been, you know, an uptick now in, in Southeast Asia. Just wondering, comparatively, is there signs that like China's demand might be flattening out, but this other region might be poised to, to take up the slack? Uh, what, what is growth like in the you know, Indonesia and, and, and Vietnam and these, these areas? I don't think one will necessarily have to feed off the other, and there's space for both. Both areas are, if you think about it, sort of economically and otherwise, absolutely emerging. There are millions and millions of people in these regions who have never traveled and who will travel for the first time over the next few decades. Um, And Southeast Asia in particular is just incredible. They have as many planes on order as they have in the sky at the moment. So that's about 1,700, 1,800 planes. Just think about what that means for the region in terms of its importance for aerospace. Absolutely vital. Thanks for talking to us, Clara. Thank you. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank all my colleagues at Breaking Views. And a special shout out to our producers, Andrew D'Antonio and Freddie Joyner. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com and subscribe to the Views Room on iTunes. Don't forget to tune in next week for another edition.